Nobel laureate John Mather, a parent of the James Webb Space Telescope, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Here's another of those wonderful conversations that remind me of how lucky I am to host this show. John Mather shared the 2006 Nobel Prize for Physics, awarded to him for his pioneering work with COBE, the Cosmic Background Explorer spacecraft. It was COBE that convinced most of the holdouts that our universe began with that euphemism known as the Big Bang. John was already deeply involved with development of what would become the JWST and had been for years. He remains the senior project scientist for the observatory, which turned on its four instruments just days ago. I think you're going to enjoy this interview as much as I did. And I think you'll also enjoy hearing about gold, beryllium, and golf balls from Bruce Betts when our chief scientist takes us across the sky for What's Up. Is that Enceladus at the top of the January 28th edition of the Downlink? It is, but that's not all. They're the plumes we talked about last week on the show, and they're the rings seen edge-on. And that tiny companion? It's the moon called Pandora. Really, could you ask for anything more in one image? Thanks, Cassini. Here's more of what you'll find at planetary.org slash downlink. Several astronomers think they found a medium-sized black hole in our neighbor, the Andromeda Galaxy. What's medium? Oh, about 100,000 times the mass of our sun. Nice profile shot of Andromeda, too. And here's a discovery from Curiosity that came too late for my recent conversation with project scientist Ashwin Vasavada. The Mars rover has found an isotope of carbon that is associated with life down here on Earth. No, it's still not close to being proof, but it's one more way station on the road to learning if we're alone in the universe. John Mather's more general title at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center is Senior Astrophysicist in the Observational Cosmology Lab. He has been measuring and probing the cosmos for about half a century. As you'll hear, he was among the first to realize how infrared astronomy could tell us things about the universe that we would never discover within that narrow range of electromagnetic wavelengths we call visible light. Now he and we are mere months away from the most powerful infrared telescope in history beginning to deliver science. He has been on the JWST project from the beginning and can hardly wait to get his hands on that data. John, thank you so much for joining us on Planetary Radio. It, it truly is an honor to uh, to talk with you. You know, I already told you it was your great conversation with your colleague there at Goddard, Michelle Thaller, during the deployment coverage that made me think, shoot, I've got to invite you to be on the show. So uh, it's a great pleasure to have you on today. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here with you. Planetary Radio and the Planetary Society, we have been covering uh, JWST uh, from the start, we share your excitement about its progress and and promise. And in fact, it was just a, a month ago that I was talking with your colleagues Renee Doyon and uh, Heidi Hamill and Michael McElwain. Last July, more fun than I've had maybe across the entire pandemic. I got to go to Northrop Grumman and sit on the other side of the glass and talk to people like Bill Oakes about uh, about the telescope. 
I did not really get a feel for the scale of this magnificent new instrument until it was sitting across from me in that in that clean room. It is just it's awe inspiring. It truly is. It is enormous. It is gold. It is beautiful. It is complicated. <laughs> And it is all folded up or was folded up to go into space on top of a rocket, which to me is one of those terrifying events that we know we have to live with and we design for it. But it's still kind of scary to imagine you've put your life work and your friends and colleagues life work on top of all the explosive material you can find and you push the button and up it goes. And of course, it works perfectly because we've done this before. But even back in your 2006 uh, Nobel lecture, which I, I listened to and very much enjoyed, you, well, first you had a slide about the telescope, and it's almost surreal that all that uh, many years ago, the picture you showed is basically what has now unfolded up there in space. But you even said then that it's a little terrifying to some of your engineer colleagues on the team that this thing would have to unfold like the flower as it has. Yes, of course it's terrifying. It's terrifying in different ways for different people. At the beginning, you say we have to conceive the right thing so that it'll do the science that we want. Then we have to come to a, a deal that says, well, we, we think we could do that. Then you go through the process of designing it, and you have to prove that it's the right design. And then you go through the process of building it. Oh, now we tested it. And finally, at the very end, you have to say, I swear I know how to make sure this will work because I've tested every single thing that could possibly go wrong. And that is the most terrifying part because you, in the back of your mind, are we really sure? But <laughs> I think we did what we needed to do and uh, we certainly hope so uh, because we were very, very thorough. We had thousands of requirements to check off, thousands of risk items that we worried about, thousands of command procedures to re rehearse and practice, and we're doing them as far as we can tell, without mishap. You must be exceedingly proud of the team that has pulled this off, just to this point. I am absolutely, I'm in awe of this team. It's so much easier for a scientist to say on the whiteboard, this is what we need to build, than it is to imagine <laughs> how it's ever going to happen. Honestly, to find out what it really takes to make it happen is awesome. It's awe-inspiring, it's just terrifying. In uh, If you say, I never could do that, but a team can do that. So we have. You have made me think of what has become one of my favorite pages on the entire World Wide Web. And it's the dashboard for JWST that actually shows the temperature on the hot side of the telescope of the, of the spacecraft and on the cold side. And the difference between those is already pretty striking. It is huge, of course, uh, by intention. We need the telescope to be so cold that it does not emit its own infrared light. And so that means uh, the detectors have to be colder than about 40 Kelvin. The mirrors have to be colder than about 50 or 60 Kelvin. All of those things are done passively in the sense that no refrigerator is running to make that happen. But we do have, in addition, uh, one instrument that requires 7 Kelvin. So it does have a compressor uh, for helium gas, and it does go down and expand and cool off the mid-infrared instrument. So for an astronomer, uh, a picture is worth a thousand words, while a spectrum is worth a thousand pictures, because it tells us what's <laughs> really happening inside. We get the chemistry, the motions, the temperatures, the physical properties of what's inside, and you need to know that to know if the thing you found is primordial. So what's a sign of primordial? Well, it would be um, a galaxy that has nothing in it but hydrogen and helium. 
because that's what we think came from the Big Bang. So, well, if it's got anything else in it, it's not the primordial one. That's pretty tricky, but it is our job. If, or, or maybe rather when, the JWST reveals the light of those very first galaxies, what do you hope we'll be able to learn from, from that, from these at least elementally fairly simple uh, structures? Well, uh, number one question is, are we missing anything from the story? Uh, we've got a, a very wonderful collection of uh, supercomputer simulations of the growth of the first objects and how they grow into modern times galaxies. So they appear to grow by uh, tiny things forming first and then gravity pulls them together in wonderfully dramatic collisions. And it's just super to watch the movies in the computer of how this might have happened. But honestly, you don't know if it's a true story until you go look. So something could be missing. What could be missing? Well, we were surprised, as you know, by discovering the acceleration of the universe that we call due to the dark energy. Uh, we were surprised by the dark matter, which uh, nobody can see even now. Uh, we know it's there because it does something, deflects the light, makes things orbit differently. So both of those things are big mysteries, and we're still having a mystery about even measuring the expansion rate of the universe. We've got several different methods, and, uh, and they're very accurate and precise, and right now they're not agreeing as we expected them to. This is either too much data or a wonderful surprise from nature. So we hope to work that out. Do you expect that the JWST will have more to tell us, not just about the formation of these early structures in our universe, the galaxies, uh, and maybe their clusters, but, but also about the creation of the universe itself, that work that has so fascinated you for basically your entire career, the, the Big Bang and what followed it? Yeah, uh, we may not uh, with this observatory. We're not observing the cosmic microwave background or its uh, details. Uh, they've already been very well observed. And there's one more thing that people want to measure about that cosmic background radiation, which is its polarization. There's a pattern of polarization they're looking for, which would tell us about very, very, very early times when gravitational waves could have been running through the universe. And if they did, uh, they should have imprinted a particular kind of polarization on that background radiation. There are hints. Uh, we are getting close. We may be able to measure some of it from the ground, and we might have to go into space to really be sure. So that's the next big project for that area. But I do want to come back to one thing, because we talk about the creation of the universe. But honestly, uh, astronomers don't say the universe was created. We only can tell you the story of how it expands. There is not a first moment. The universe did not somehow spring into no being from nothingness. We only have a, a strange uh, behavior of time as we go back and back towards the earliest moments that you can imagine. The way I tell it is, as you try to imagine backwards to the extreme conditions of the early times, when you run out of imagination, that's what we call the Big Bang. <laughs> What is the other science that you are most looking forward to when data starts to uh, flow back to us from the telescope? We are going to look at everything from the first objects that grew from the Big Bang to now. Uh, the, all the steps that would lead to uh, sort of the situation of the solar system, for instance. Not only will we look at the growth of galaxies uh, and see how they change over time, but we'll be looking at stars being born. Inside those beautiful clouds, like the Eagle Nebula, with the, or they call it the, uh, the Pillars of Creation, 
Uh, stars are being born now. They're being born in the sword of Orion and the middle star there, the Orion Nebula. So all those places are great places for stars to be born, but they are very interesting and frustrating for us astronomers because our telescopes cannot see inside. All those beautiful things that you see are blocking our view. We think of space as empty, but it's actually not. There's dirt and gas in space, and the dust grains block our view. And so the thing that would be the most interesting to know, you can't see. Infrared light has the capability of going around a dust grain instead of bouncing off. So we'll be able to see inside and see stars being born, hopefully with planets. So we get some idea how planets are born as well. We have been surprised every year by new things about planets. When I was a youngster, it was imagined that uh, planetary systems must be extremely rare because we had no idea how they could ever be formed. The sort of prevailing theory was, well, it must come from a close collision between two stars. Well, that was wrong. Uh, and actually, we know that almost all stars have planets now. And that's a totally remarkable result of observations. Uh, now, uh, we still have an interesting challenge, though, that... Uh, we haven't found anything that looks like our solar system. Our solar system is unique in the sense of having a bunch of rocky planets close to the center, and then a gap with an asteroid belt, and then some really big gas giant planets outside. Are we missing this in other stars because we just can't see well enough, or are there really no other systems like the solar system? So this is getting at the question of, is the Earth a very special spot? Uh, well, it is in the solar system. We're the only place that has a liquid ocean uh, with continental drift, or the better name for it is plate tectonics. The continents have been zipping around across the globe for uh, billions of years. And uh, that was probably an important part of our planetary biological history. We happened to get hit by a giant asteroid about 65 million years ago, which changed our own biological history immensely. So our story here on planet Earth is of uh, catastrophe after catastrophe, and we're still here as the survivors, uh, the lucky survivors of all of that. And maybe that was an essential part of our story. If you say, well, what if those things had not happened? Would we be here? Uh, you can't answer that question, uh, but maybe not. All of that's a pretty interesting part of our history, and uh, I think it's why I'm so excited about learning more about it. We are certainly very excited uh, about uh the uh, exoplanet discoveries and characterizations that may, might, if we're very lucky, come from this telescope. I mean, that possibility, um, maybe it will take a bigger, even bigger instrument, but what if uh, the JWST finds methane and oxygen in the atmosphere of, uh, of some world circling a, another star? I mean, it's hard to imagine anything more exciting. Well, there will be future things that are even more exciting when, when, when we do find signs of life. But for <laughs> now, uh, I know what we're going to look at. We're going to be looking at uh, about two dozen small planets orbiting small stars. And we'll be able to see, I think, if they have water in their atmospheres. We'll be looking at a couple of dozen, I think, total of 65 planets altogether, where we know they're going to go in front of their stars and we'll get a transit. So we can observe the the light that comes through the planetary atmosphere on its way to our telescope and do the chemical analysis. So what's in those things? Well, it could be those little planets are just little rocks and they have no atmosphere. Or it could be uh, that there is an atmosphere that's uh, got nothing in it but hydrogen or oxygen or, or, or who knows what's in it, nitrogen. 
or it could be that it's uh, full of fascinating molecules and the water one is one of the easier ones to find. So that's why we look for that. Uh, we could see some big planets that are more like Jupiter uh, or Saturn uh, orbiting closer into their stars. So uh, we expect lots of surprises. I'm actually hoping that uh, the telescope will surpass even the expectations of folks like you and, and find evidence for something like CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons, oh, and we'll know yeah. that somebody out there is treating their planet as badly as we do sometimes. Um, Heidi Hamill, uh, who's been heard regularly on the show, and as I said, we talked to about a month ago, I know that she has also excited about what it may be able to do within our solar system. As you, I'm sure, know, she's very interested in what's happening in the outer solar system, particularly Uranus and Neptune, uh, and I guess is some time being budgeted for, for those studies. Oh, absolutely. We're looking at all the planets from Mars on outwards. And I'm particularly also interested in two satellites that uh, are interesting because of the potential hosts for life. I, I would argue, and I know I'm not alone, that the uh, impact of the images that the Hubble Space Telescope have captured are perhaps as important from the public sense as any of the science that it has delivered. And I, I wonder if you agree with that and, and if you think that the JWST will, will continue that tradition. Oh, I do agree. Uh, uh, the pictures are beautiful. People keep them in their houses. They, they publish books of them. They keep them. I, I talked to one person who said she had her entire apartment covered with them. It was what <laughs> kept her sane. I know a senator who has one on his, on his wall in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Anyway, I am thrilled with those pictures. They are beautiful. Uh, and they tell us a story of a little bit about where we came from and uh, what might be. Uh, will Webb do the same thing? I think so. Uh, they'll be a little different because that's the point. It's supposed to be different, mm. uh, but beautiful anyway. Uh, why do we make them beautiful? Well, it's partly so that we astronomers can understand them. Uh, we get an, a vast amount of information. You can't uh, process uh, many gigabytes of information to say, well, it means something until you can make a picture. It sure does make uh, for some pretty art uh, at that intersection of science and art. I mean, you already mentioned the Eagle Nebula and uh, the Pillars of Creation. Uh, going back to that Nobel lecture that you gave in 2006, one of the things you mentioned is very similar to what our boss, the CEO of the Planetary Society, likes to say, uh, Bill Nye, uh, that it really all comes down to answering two questions. And the way he puts it is, where do we come from and are we alone? You stated it in a very similar way. Yeah, I, it is my big question. Uh, I've been interested in this since I was a child. Um, personally, um, I have a kind of answer to the are we alone question, which is I'm sure we're not alone and I'm sure the neighbors are very far away. So I'm, I'm sorry to, to disappoint people. I'm quite sure they did not come to visit. And the reason that I'm sure is it is just space is so large. People don't fully appreciate the impossibility of what we see in science fiction stories. I'm with you, sadly. I, I wish we could look to, uh, you know, a Star Trek universe where uh, the Klingons are only a few uh, light years away. But maybe that wouldn't be such a great idea, actually. Yeah. I wonder if you could just say something about your job and, and you know, what are oh, your responsibilities yeah. as, as senior project scientist? Yes. Well, my job has changed over the years. Uh, uh, on the first day, I was more, I was the one scientist and there was one manager and we said, we're going to make a project. <laughs> and what kind of project is it going to be? 
so then my job was to work with them uh, to say, well, this is possible and work with scientists to say, this is what we need to make the next big step in astronomy. Now my job is to, to cheer. <laughs> I suspect it may involve a little bit more than that. John, this has been absolutely delightful, as I expected it would be. Uh, we will join you in looking forward to first light from the James Webb Space Telescope, which, which actually might reveal to us first light, uh, the first light in the universe, or at least the first galaxies. Uh, I guess uh, the, the most fun is still ahead of us. Absolutely. Looking forward to seeing it happen. John Mather of the Goddard Space Flight Center is the senior project scientist for the James Webb Space Telescope. Planetary Radio continues with Bruce Betts in one minute. There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Want more space? We've got the latest news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. Hi, I'm Jason Davis, Editorial Director for the Planetary Society. Did you know there are more than 20 planetary science missions exploring our solar system? That means a lot of news happens in any given week. Here's how to keep up with it all. The downlink is our new roundup of planetary exploration headlines. It connects you to the details when you want to dive deeper. From Mercury to interstellar space, we'll catch you up on what you might have missed. That's the downlink every Friday at planetary.org. Hey, it's time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Here's the chief scientist. It's Bruce Betts. He's back. Yay. Welcome. Back and better than ever. Did I go somewhere? <laughs> no, I, I don't see you all week. I mean, this is it. I see you on a, on a little Zoom-like screen. It's Zencaster for anybody who's really curious, but it's, it's just a pleasure. That's all. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sure. I haven't gone anywhere in years. <laughs> like the rest of us. Hey, but you know, I actually go out in the yard and look up at the sky. And when I look up at the sky, what a transition. When I look at in the evening in the West, Jupiter's still hanging on, but it's getting lower and lower. But for those of you up in the pre-dawn, the planet party has really gotten going. We've got uh, Venus looking super bright over in the east in the pre-dawn. Look to its lower right, you can see reddish Mars. And look to its lower left during this coming week or so, and you'll see Mercury. So Mercury, Venus, and Mars all hanging out in the pre-dawn east. Venus and Mars getting a little bit closer together, and we'll be hanging out for a little while. Mercury doing its thing. On to this week in space history. It was this week in 1971 that the momentous Apollo experience of Alan Shepard hitting a golf ball on the moon occurred. And also, <laughs> oh, by the way, Apollo 14 was on the moon exploring and grabbing samples and doing science. Uh, in 1974, Mariner 10 used Venus as a gravity assist on its way to Mercury. We move on to... That was exactly what the golf ball said after Alan Shepard hit it. Yeah, but no one can hear it. <laughs> you probably heard a little something about this James Webb Space Telescope, I'm guessing. Yeah. 
yeah, in a couple episodes recently, including very recently. Did you know, you probably knew, Matt, that the mirror is coated in gold, very thin gold, about uh, 100 nanometers. And you may ask yourself, how does this tie to the This Week in Space History and, and what would the mass of all of that gold together be? And what would it be equivalent to? And you know what the answer would be? A golf ball. Oh, is that right? I'll be darned. Okay, that's actually more than I might have expected. So the, the coating is uh, about 48 grams when you take all 25 square meters. Anyway, golf ball. Uh, that's the end of the golf ball segments for Planetary Radio. Even better than the gold is the beryllium in my book of the uh, of the mirrors that's underneath oh, yeah. the gold. I think it's just poetic justice that this element that might have been created in the Big Bang is going to be used to look back nearly to the Big Bang. Whoa. (laughs) I know, I blew your mind. All right, we move on to the trivia question. I ask you, what planets have higher surface gravity than Earth, where for the giant planets, we'll use the gravity at the one bar, about one atmosphere pressure level? Jason Gillette. Jason Gillette in Ohio, longtime listener, Jupiter, Saturn, Neptune. He says, I was going to try to calculate the surface gravity of a rubber asteroid, but I I don't know its mass or radius. Send one over and I'll do the calculations. (laughs) Ignore the fact that I don't really understand the math. It's a trick. (laughs) Jason, we're going to do that. You can get all those dimensions from the rubber asteroid that we're going to put in the mail to you for winning the contest this week. Congratulations. We ready? Okay. What working spacecraft are at the Earth-Sun Lagrange point two, L2? Working spacecraft at Earth-Sun L2, and by at, I include halo orbits near L2. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. How'd you know I was going to ask for that clarification? You have until the 9th, that'd be Wednesday, February 9th at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us the answer. And here is a unique prize package for whoever makes it through this one, makes it past random.org with the right answer. You've all heard probably about the movie Moonfall, which is uh, premiering, I assume, worldwide. I don't really know. On the 4th, Friday, February 4th. Well, we have a package of swag from that movie. Now, I have not seen it. Don't even want to tell you what I've heard about it. But the swag is great. There is a shirt, uh, a T-shirt, that says uh, the Mega Structurist Club, which I think has a lot to do with the plot of the movie. And there's a, a, a baseball cap that says the same. There's a cool silver bag that says Moonfall. There's a collapsible rubber cup. I guess I should say rubber cup. And, yeah. and what looks like possibly a cork cup warmer, but I'm not really sure from the picture. On top of all of this, I think we're giving away some tickets uh, that will be a part of this package. So uh, you can uh, go off and see Moonfall and then tell us all about it. I hope it will be great fun. I don't have great confidence in the science, but I do hope the movie will be fun. Fun! I have nothing else to add except this message that we will accompany with our congratulations to Jason Hensley in Texas, who says he took a break from the podcast for a while as he was enjoying the birth of his son, Orion, who he (laughs) named Orion, clearly because he heard me say that's my favorite constellation. 
Thank you, Jason, and uh, welcome to Earth, Orion. Uh, we, uh, we look forward to having you as a listener. All right, Orion, go out there, look up the night sky. Well, I mean, bundle up, stay warm, and uh, hang out with uh, parents. Look up the night sky and think about beryllium, using beryllium to study the Big Bang that created beryllium, and think about Matt thinking about it. Thank you, and good night. That's Bruce Betts. He's thinking about it while he's the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, and he joins us every week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its noble members. Mark Hilverda and Jason Davis are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra. Ad Astra.